0: If you would turn with me to Genesis forty, you will know that the last couple times, except for this past time, it, we've been um, we've been exploring the ta- the story of Joseph and looking to his word, looking to God's word, to see what He has for us through Joseph's life. We've seen Joseph endure lots of hardship and suffering, lots of unnecessary mm, tumult in his life, much like. Us today. Sometimes we go through things and we don't know why. And as I've I've kind of taken it upon myself to reread some of the books that I read when I was younger. I don't know if you've ever done this, where you went back and were like, I just don't think I understood that word. I don't know if I understood that book or did anything of that sort. I've been rereading a lot of those. And this one that I just finished is called *The Count of Monte Cristo*. Some of you might be familiar with it because of the movie. Um, great movie way too much sword fighting as far as like the book is concerned not a single sword fight act- happens in the book uh sorry to burst your bubble but the book is way better uh in so many ways let me just put it out there but it centers around the central character of edmond de dantes he's a sailor he's been elevated to uh the captain of the ferron and he is becoming uh Something like everybody wants to be successful. He's about to get married to a beautiful girl. There's everything has, He has everything going for him. And these guys, they take it upon themselves to say, we want everything that he has. And they falsely accuse him. He becomes imprisoned in the infamous Chateau d'If. And basically is forgotten. Everybody assumes he's dead. All but one person. But that story is almost like when Alexander Dumas was writing this book, he was looking at Joseph's life, and I was just kind of struck by that this 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 past week as I was uh, prepping to to preach and uh, also you know going through the Bible with the students. I was just struck by how similar these two incidents are. Think about Joseph. Joseph is you know envied for his his you know father's favor, right? He's he's falsely imprisoned for something he didn't do, right? He, uh, he's even forgotten in our text. So much so that his brothers, we find out in Genesis 42, just assume he's dead. It's almost like Alexander Dumas was looking at the story of Joseph when he wrote his, the Count of Monte Cristo, minus the vengeance and the desperation. Perhaps you too have had An experience like this where you had a goal and you were striving after it, only to have it slip through your fingers. Only to have what seems like a sure thing not be a thing at all. Or maybe you obtain that thing and it causes suffering in your life. Like a job opportunity. That could be everything that you want. It could provide everything you need for your family. Like uh, you're a possible fiancé, someone you're going to marry it finally comes on the scene. You're like, yes, this is what I want. This is what I've been dreaming for. This is what I, everything. It's everything that I wanted. How about the healthy lifestyle you finally achieved by putting all the right things in place, right? You finally got your workout in. You finally got your food right. The diet's correct. But your future employer never calls. Your future spouse rejects you without an explanation. And that healthy lifestyle that you strive so hard for ends up being the death of you. Because your heart just can't take the repeated keto diet. Think about it. It's not good for you. We've all chased something that is promised us happiness. We've all chased something and had it not happen, like we hoped it would happen. And that's exactly what we see in Genesis 40. We see... Um, a reminder to God's people that God, the Lord's timing is perfect for them. We also see a warning to those people who are not of God that the Lord's timing is perfect. For the just and the unjust, the Lord's timing is perfect. For the hopeless and the hopeful, the Lord's timing is perfect. So that's the takeaway from this morning. It might seem like, oh, that's an easy get. But here's the thing is the Lord's timing is perfect. And we need to be reminded that of that, especially when we're going through trials and hard times. With that, let's read Genesis 40. And I'm going to let you sit down because it's a lot of text. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. In the prison where Joseph was confined, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. He continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to them, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. When it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, He made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted it to them. Yet the chief baker did not remember Joseph, but forgot it. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, this, this story can be broken down in so many different ways. We could focus on everything. But I want to I want you to see that the Lord's timing is perfect throughout this passage. Because most of the time, it's actually combined with the next chapter. You've got two dreams here. You've got two dreams in the next chapter. It seems like it's a good fit. It is, in fact. But we don't have enough time in the day for me to preach those two things to you. So uh, Genesis 40 is where we're going to be at. And we see this first block of text is found in verse 1 to 8. And it impresses upon us that God's timing overrides our perceived station in favor in life. So we've got officers, right? Uh, Pharaoh, the baker, the cupbearer, and then we have Joseph. And now I, I want to pay attention really closely that we don't really know what a cupbearer does, except for some things, at least from the text, except for some things that we can uh, see from the text, some of the dream that he has, but also from cupbearers also like Nehemiah. This this cupbearer is um, someone who tastes all of Pharaoh's food, right? So cupbearer will come to the king, he'll taste the food in front of the king, the king will um, receive the food that does not kill the cupbearer, right? He stands in the in between the Pharaoh and the food. And to make sure it's not poison. So he bears the cup in multiple ways. He bears the cup in the sense of he tastes the food, but also he bears the cup in face of the consequences of what might come from that food. Um, and so he makes sure that Pharaoh's life is not, uh, Pharaoh's life, he doesn't die, or he is not sickened by its contents, whatever the food is. The baker, I think, is harder to actually figure out what he does. We we think baker, we think bread, right? We think uh, anything that comes out of the bakery, like Moreno's. Moreno's is awesome. Um, and now I'm thinking about Cuban sandwiches. Uh, so but but he he is actually a subordinate of the cupbearer, I would because he is in charge of all the food that is coming to the cupbearer to taste. Now I think we can see that. And thus had constre- extreme control over the ingredients and the processes and everything by which it was cooked, so that. He is accountable not only to the cup cup bearer, but also Pharaoh. They were chiefs and officers, and so they had a lot of clout, right? They had to be in charge of everything because I don't know about you, but if I'm the cup bearer of the king, I want to make sure that everything coming to me is going to be good to eat. It's not going to kill me. And certainly not going to kill Pharaoh. And so I am going to make sure that everything in the line, including the baker and everything else that comes from it, um, is controlled. But something went wrong. And we see that in verse 1, they committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Now, whether they actually committed it or it was committed in some line somewhere, the Pharaoh was angry because his life is at stake. And he, they uh, jeopardize his life. So those are the first two characters we see. We see Joseph also introduced in the fairy and in, in verse three. But we know that he's a blameless man. We know that he is affected by the sins of everyone else. It seems like his brothers, and Potiphar's wife, and in a, a lot of ways, the prison. He's he's in prison for because of God's perfect timing. And, and he doesn't see this. He's not, he doesn't really know. But I think it's safe to assume, based on what he does, what Joseph does, is that he does trust the Lord and his timing, believing that it is perfect. And if you remember back to Genesis 39, Potiphar is called the captain of the guard. So it's almost as if Joseph never left the house. He just went from the house to the dungeon. Right? But the dungeon of the house. And so this captain of the guard who knows Joseph's character, who knows that he's been accused of something, this captain of the guard who's seen his his um, faithfulness over and over and over, talks to the keeper of prison, I'm assuming, right? And gives a good report. And the keeper of the prison says, yes, he's a good man. I see this. He, he's in charge of everything. And then places him in charge of Pharaoh's officers. Now, this is not something that would be lightly handed out, right? It would be something that, hey, we need to keep these guys alive because Pharaoh has kept them alive. What a grace of God, right? Because Pharaoh could have just called for both of their heads to be taken up off of them right away, right? He had that kind of power over them. But Joseph is placed in charge over them. And I want you to see that the biggest difference between these two people are one, is this. One is justly, imprisoned and one is unjustly imprisoned, right? You see that they committed an offense and so they were there in jail, in prison because they actually did something. Joseph, completely innocent. He actually did what was righteous and godly. He escaped from sin and yet is suffering. It might be a simple thing for you to see that, but when you realize that both the Lord's timing is perfect for the just and the unjust, For both of these two men, you start to see something a little bit more deep than just the Lord will carry Joseph on, right? You see that the cupbearer, for instance, is brought into contact with Joseph, that the baker is brought into contact with Joseph, and they are both given someone who can interpret their dreams, right? It's Yahweh's man. It's the, the man of God, one of his own choosing. He has been, they have been placed in the presence of a man who will be faithful no matter what the circumstances are. And for Joseph, he's actually met the one guy who is going to release him from prison. Even though he forgets him at the end. He still remembers him, and we see that in chapter 41. The cupbearer is, in a lot of ways, his liberation from this prison. So the Lord's timing is perfect toward the just and the unjust, even when we don't see that. And while Joseph was assigned to attend to the cupbearer, he did this in a certain type of way, right? In a faithful way, just like he did with Potiphar's house. He, he took care of it. He made sure it flourished. And in here, he attends to them with careful diligence and kindness. And we see this in verse 5, 6, and 7, right? The next set of texts. Verse 5 tells us that both the cupbearer and the baker had dreams, and they were troubled by these dreams. These dreams were not incidental to them. They were the way that they actually met with their gods and they had no one to interpret them for them imagine for me for a second that you did not have the bible just imagine it's, it's impossible at this point the lord has given it to us but you are a pagan walking around in a pagan society and the only way that the that raw speaks to you the god of the, the sun god he speaks to you is through a dream and you have no way of actually interpreting these dreams except for the Pharaoh's men, right? The wise men of Pharaoh's house. And so you walk around in dread all the time because, oh my gosh, what does this dream mean for me? What does this dream mean for me? It's a miserable existence to not understand what is going, around, going on around you. And that's what I think the cupbearer and the baker are experiencing complete and utter blindness to what their reality is they know they're in jail so they and they probably are aware of their their sin i would assume but they also don't know anything about their dreams And dreams in that time were the way that the gods spoke to them. So it makes sense as to why they had so much anxiety over not knowing what's coming next. But let me tell you this, and this is our first point of application. So if you're ready, uh, if you're not ready or not, here it comes. We have a sure and steady word from God. We do not have to wonder about what our dreams mean. We do not have to wonder about what is coming next. We do not have to wonder about how to go about those things because the Lord has given us a sure and steady word to stand upon and to run in accordance with. That word does not fail. It is sufficient for all things. Dreams have nothing on the word of God. That's exactly why Joseph tells them, do not all interpretations belong to God. Because God, he relied on God's word. You and I, Christian in the room, you and I must rely on God's word. If you do not, you will suffer in ways that you do not understand. You might actually have some fun doing it, but in many ways, your life will amount to nothing. But the word gives us eternal life. The spirit applies that word to our life. And these this baker and cupbearer have no nothing like that. Nothing. They must rely on something that happens to them. But we've been given a Bible, God's word that has been written for us as his people. That's a very different game. We can walk through life knowing that the Bible is God's infallible, inherent, sufficient. Everlasting word and all we need for life and godliness. If you're not a Christian in this room, let me tell you, you, you're you're basing your life off of something that you think might be right, but you have no idea. If you're a Christian in this room and you're going off of your gut instinct all the time, you're probably wrong because it's probably serving you and your gut more than it is serving anybody else. And that's not what the Lord asks of you. Dreams are only as good as their interpretation of God. And so if you dream in Scripture, I guess you've got a sure word. But otherwise, you must bring everything into subjection under Christ. The cupbearer and the baker both have troubling dreams, and God has connected them with Joseph. What a providence, right? What what God's timing is perfect because Joseph is um, a man of the Lord. And so Joseph, being the one who was in charge of everything, notice this, verse 6, he notices their pain. He notices that they have been brought under something that is now troubling them. That's what faithful men and women do. They don't look at themselves or their phones or what they think is right all the time. They look at others. They're pointed away from themselves looking to serve others. Because that is what the Lord has done for us. Joseph is doing that for these guys. He could be bitter, right? He could be really angry at his circumstance, and yet no, he still is working as if he's working for the Lord. He's in prison. He's in the pit. He describes it as just just like that, a pit. He could be despairing. He could be saying, "Woe is me," but he doesn't. He works as if he is working unto the Lord. See, Joseph has every earthly reason to be bitter. And these guys, because, because he was unjustly accused, these guys were justly accused and they're coming to him for help and hope. But God, and Joseph, instead of entrusting himself to his dreams or anything else, he seeks to do equity and give justice like Micah 6.8 calls us to do. Hear this, if you haven't heard it in a while, I was reminded of it this weekend, this week. Oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? That's all Joseph's doing, right? Even in his bad circumstances. Instead of exacting vengeance like the Count of Monte Cristo, he looks to love and serve those around him. He does what Paul exhorts the Philippians to do in chapter 3, verses 13 and 15. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, particularly as salvation. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward the goal, straining forward for what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way. Joseph is the mature man. This is what Paul is calling us to be, mature in our thinking to not worry about what happened behind us, but to learn from it and strain forward. We're not to be like Lot's wife who turns around and goes, where's my, and then all she is is a pillar of salt. The Lord says that any any man who puts his hand to the plow and looks into the rear is not worthy of his kingdom. We strain for the goal. We strain toward the glory of God. Joseph strives toward the glory of God instead of giving way to bitterness instead of blaming everybody else for his plight if, instead of requiring God now this is big instead of requiring God or man to right his injustice Joseph does what is just Joseph performs his duties with faithfulness he endures his suffering forgetting what lies ahead ahead for all for the glory of God he understands that the Lord's timing is perfect for the just and the unjust, for the righteous and the unrighteous. Joseph needs justice. He will get it because he was innocent of his crimes. And when we think about these things, uh, especially when we go back to Exodus and you see the people of God being chased by Pharaoh and Moses says, for this day you will see a work of the Lord, right? He says this day. Your day may not be this day, but God does promise to never forsake you, not to leave you, but to make sure that you are carried into eternity with him if you trust him. So instead of complaining at a very little inconvenience, for instance, we have no Wi-Fi today. So what does that mean? I had to come in early and hand jam some stuff in the computer only to lose it and to figure out another way to do it. Yeah, you don't really realize what you have, like Wi-Fi, until it's gone, especially when you have a computer that relies on it. But instead of complaining, straightforward forward the goal, right? Instead of having, you know, we, we got in a, a car accident on Johnny's birth, birthday, and that was, I was like, man, what a, what a way to celebrate a birthday. You know, we know what's coming, man, why are we getting rear-ended, especially by this By this other lady who works for the place that we're going to be giving this stuff to. It's so weird how God works, but in a way, God's timing was perfect in that moment. Why? Because we had an opportunity to rely on Him just a little bit more, and instead of complaining at that inconvenience, we strove to love Him more. Instead of feeling slighted and lashing out at those uh, at that lady. We tried to care for her. Are you okay? How are you doing? Hey, we need to go up here to the church because that's safe. Instead of getting out on persons where that turn lane is, don't do that. That's a bad idea, especially if a car can drive. We thought thought that it would not be a good thing to complain and gripe to her, but to make sure that we all were safe. So instead of complaining at the smallest inconvenience or even the large inconvenience, We need to choose to walk faithfully and humbly before our God, loving those around us. What does that mean? Has the Lord given you a husband? Wives? Care for him. Has the Lord given you a wife? No matter how difficult or easy it is to live with her, love her with gentleness. Has the Lord given you a child? Rear them with grace. Don't discipline them out of anger, but love them. Has the Lord given you a job? Exalt your superiors and use your station, use your job to love your neighbor with the intent of evangelizing that neighbor. Has the Lord given you none of these things? Has he taken these things from you? Praise his name. The hardest thing you'll do in life is to praise the name of the Lord when you haven't seen any fruit, when you've only experienced suffering. Think about Joseph's life. He's experienced the worst of this suffering. And yet he's still praising and working as unto the Lord. It's a hard thing to do. But the Lord has placed you in a certain circumstance with certain resources to faithfully carry out your duty in those situations. That means you don't have to be at the ends of the earth to glorify God's name. You can do it right here today where God has you. And if your eyes aren't looking up for that, If your eyes aren't looking for it, you'll think that there's always something better out there, but the pasture is not always greener on the other side. In fact, many missionaries that I come in contact with who are on the ends of the earth, glorifying God's name in that way, are the most lonely people because they have nothing to hold on to except for the Lord himself. They endure suffering that you and I would not ever understand because they are alone in that world even if they're with their spouse or even a team. The Lord has us in a particular place at a particular time, just like he had Joseph at a particular place at a particular time. And his timing is perfect toward all people, just and unjust. But as we move through our text, we see in verse 9, the cupbearer comes and tells Joseph his dream. We see that this dream reveals a couple things, but mostly about just what his job's like, right? His job is uh, a cupbearer. It has something to do with grapes. It has something to do with vines because grapes come from vines and branches and these things. But there is really no like indication of like the interpretation of this within the dream. It has to be given to him from divine source. It has to be given to him from God. There is no way to surmise. There is no no handbook. To go, oh, that's what your dream means, allegory, or you know, this for that, this for that, and so Joseph is given this uh, favorable interpretation of the dream and relays it to this cupbearer, giving him hope, right? Not just giving the cupbearer hope, but giving Joseph hope. Why? Because that means the cupbearer is going to be able to be in front of Pharaoh once again. He has a hope that, oh, okay, okay. Now I see an opportunity. I'm going to faithfully step through it until God says it's no more. Right? He says, remember me to the cupbearer when it is well with you. Right? When he is at the right hand of Pharaoh, he says, remember me, not out of some selfish ambition, but because he sees something that the Lord is doing, that the Lord, he believes that the Lord will put this cupbearer so surely to the right hand of Pharaoh once again that he says, do me this favor, show me hesed. show me kindness, the same kindness that I've shown you in easing your fears, and tell Pharaoh of me. It's not something that I think most of us would think about as a, a godly action, because sometimes we think that it has to be a wide open door for us to walk through it. Like, hey, this person comes to me and they say, "Hey, I have a new job for you." And they just say, "All you got to do is sign the papers." Sometimes that's not the open door. Sometimes it's, "Hey, this job is so miserable, I need to go find another one." It's miserable for my family, it's not paying enough, all these things. I'm going to work faithfully as unto the Lord, but until until something else comes around or something else I can pursue. But that can seem fairly hopeless at times, can't it? You're not making enough money. Your kids are unruly. I have a three-year-old. I understand. Uh, this is it's something that you you sometimes just lose hope in situations that God has placed you in because you're not looking for the long term. You're not looking down the road. Parents, if you are raising them with the fear and admonition of the Lord, if you're teaching them the Ten Commandments, if you're trying to instruct them in, in obedience and respect toward other people, guess what? they'll probably not not a promise here but they will probably follow after that as they get older but if you do not then you will reap what you sow and while i have a 3 year old she's she's gorgeous i don't know if you've seen her you've seen macallot run around here but she has the biggest mouth on her sometimes god uses that to sanctify you and say look what you did look what i look what you did to your mama cuz that was me Macau was me Everything that we have is in the God God's perfect timing. All right, and in this case, it seems like a glimmer of hope for Joseph to step through that door, that that opportunity, and take it, and say, "Hey, remember me." And notice what he says. He doesn't say, "My brothers put me here." Potiphar's wife's a crazy person, and she's making things up whole cloth. No, he says, "I was indeed stolen." out of the land of the hebrews and here i have done nothing that they should put me into the pit he did not blame others he just stated the facts of his circumstances and so i, I want to draw your your attention to something there are there are sometimes that you go about preaching a text or bible study and you run across something that should should grab your attention in this case he says for i indeed was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews." And was he stolen out of the land of Hebrews? Does Joseph lie? Joseph doesn't lie. Here's the thing, I think he's he's truthful to a fault. Think about it, Genesis 37, he talks to his brothers, tells them the dream. Guess what happens? He gets thrown into a pit, (laughs) you know? uh, He tells Potiphar, no, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not gonna give in to adultery. Because I have, you know, I've been given all this stuff. He's, 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 you know, he's to a de- to a fault. He's an honest man. So, what does it mean for him to say I was stolen? And I, I'll be honest with you, commentators don't handle this in the way that I am talking about it right now. They usually say, well, this is just how he feels. This is how he doesn't want to place blame. And I agree with half of that. Um, I think it's actually the true understanding of the situation. If you go back to Genesis 37, think with me, be a good Riparian. test what I'm about to say by scripture, you see that the Midianite traders in verse 28 are the ones who drew him out of the pit. The Hebrew is very clear here. It's not so clear in English because they put a period in, in between. The Midianite traders came and they, drew, they pulled him out of the pit in verse 28. But Hebrew is just all kind of one thing. And there's reference back to the nearest noun and he says Midianites, they pulled him out of a pit so i don't know if if joseph really knows that he was sold to slavery that his brothers did treachery against him i don't think he really knew and so when he comes to hear it he says i, I was stolen in verse 15 I had to stop. I had to think about it for a second. Then I read a little further forward, and the kids, the everybody, the youth know, I was like, ah, I have found my answer. Was he stolen? No. Is that how he felt? Absolutely. If you look into Genesis 52, 42, he looks uh, he does not know the actual circumstances of what happens until he hears it from his brothers. They come to buy food from him right? He recognizes them. He sees there's only 10 of them, and he treats them roughly. Why he treats them roughly? Not entirely sure right away, but then they say, hey, there are 12 of us. There's only 10 brothers with them. One is no longer, and the other is with our father. So I think Joseph testing their faithfulness, right, is going to say, bring me Benjamin. Bring me the youngest, just to make sure that you're not lying again. You know, but He just knows that these guys threw him in a pit until they are in prison for three days and they are talking amongst themselves after their release in Hebrew, I'm assuming. And they don't know that Joseph can hear them. Joseph listens. Joseph hears for the first time that they are the ones that committed this treachery. And he he weeps bitterly. He is impacted by the reality of he was not stolen. It was almost as if it was a surprise to him to hear this. Now, I could be wrong. Let me put that out there. But I think the text is really sort of ambiguous to if he knew or not. I think the text actually proves the other side. He did not know as well as we think he did. But we always assume so. And here's where I'm going with this. Is that, have you ever come across something in Scripture that challenged you? I hope the answer is yes. Does it challenge you daily? Sometimes. Are you willing to be changed by it daily when you might be wrong about something? See, if we really believe that the Lord's word, God's infallible, sufficient, inerrant word is for us, then we should be looking to be challenged by it and changed by it. Now, aside, that was an aside. But we come back to our text and we see that he really believed that he was stolen out of the land of Hebrews, out of the land of the Hebrews. That is unjust from the beginning. These guys came upon me. They pulled me out of the pit. They've they sold me into slavery. The Potiphar's wife's crazy. Uh, all these things. He, he, that's really what he believed. But he continues on working faithfully, even though he believes that he was stolen and he's in a place that is unjust. And we come to the baker's dream right after that. And if you notice, the baker says, or the, it says that the baker saw the interpretation was favorable and then went to Joseph and told him his dream. It's almost like he was a skeptic. You always got that guy that's standing in the corner going, uh-huh, what you all about? We're about to find out. You know, and then he hears something favorable and he walks over and he says, actually, I've had a dream too. Almost like he was trying to be appeased in his dream that was way more unsettling. Right? And so the baker comes that he might gain from this interpretation. He comes to Joseph, and Joseph tells him the interpretation. And there's a lot of similarities of these two dreams. Three baskets, three branches, um, the contents of the baskets, and the contents of the branches are both in accordance to what they would do, except for this one fact. The birds eat the bread before it gets to Pharaoh's. Table in the baker's room, baker's dream. Now, I don't know about you, but there scripture I when you when I read scripture, I try really hard to just understand it a lot. And one thing that kept reverberating in my mind, and I had to go check it, was how this parallels so much Proverbs 30, verse 17. Proverbs 30 verse 17 says this the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley. And eaten by vultures. That picked out by the ravens of the valley is what kind of just came to mind over and over. Somebody else thought the same thing, so I'm, I'm glad that we were on the same understanding. But here's what I think is what we're trying to be reminded of is those kinds of people who are willing to dishonor their parents, who are willing to be treacherous, in this case guilty, those kinds of people who are dishonoring their and dishonest for their bosses and will be dishonoring toward God. That their pattern of life tells you their character. And no doubt Joseph had seen some of this. He's a perceptive man, right? He saw that, why are your faces so downcast? One comes to him eagerly and the other one waits to see the, what he's going to say. But this man is proven to be guilty. He is the one that Joseph gives him, hey, your head will be lifted from you, right? And you will be hanged on a tree. It's pretty morbid for uh, for us, but it's really bad for Egyptians. Think about what an Egyptian does for their pharaoh or what they did for their pharaoh. They put them in this nice sarcophagus. They prepare them. They put treasure around them. They build pyramids to the some of them. Why? So that they might go into the heavens and be with, their, be with the gods and be as rich as they were, if not richer, than they were on earth. Right? They care about death. They care about death a lot. And so for, for an Egyptian to hear that they're going to be hung on a tree and their eyes, what is it, uh, in, and your flesh will eat, be eaten from you by birds, that's a bad thing. That's really terrible. I, I mean, it's bad in general, but it, for them, that means that they are have, they have no afterlife Their life ends here. And that would be shocking. The baker has no hope. The cupbearer has been given all hope. And Joseph sits right in between them and knows that this is what the Lord has ordained for both of these men. And so we move on to verse 20. The interesting thing about Lord's timing is that he brings things to mind over and over and over. No doubt for Joseph, he was reminding him of certain things while he was in prison. Um, We don't really told what those are. But Moses, the writer of this, says this thing that is curious on the third day. Now, the third day is what was prophesied, right? That the, the cup bearer would be brought before Pharaoh and the baker would be hanged. So near, you know, you Close to it, you see that this is, is, it matters. On the third day, exactly like Joseph said, Pharaoh brought both of the cupbearer and the baker in amongst the feast for his servants. Cupbearer is exalted, the baker is killed. But these two things happen exactly like Joseph says. These two things happened on the third day. No doubt Joseph. If he knew about this, so that's another thing is like do you know that Joseph knows that that they are they've just been taken from prison on the third day? I don't we don't know. But Moses knows when he's writing this that oh, there are other important third days. He doesn't know the full implications of those, but on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes up and saw Mount Moriah, the place where he was supposed to sacrifice his son, but his son goes free. On the third day, further on in the Pentateuch, you see that the, Israel was made, had a covenant made with them on the third day when they came to Mount Sinai. Th- these third days are important just within the Torah. There's another third day. There's another third day, which our Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Now, was Moses aware of that? No. Was the Holy Spirit, the divine author, aware of that? 100%. The Lord's timing is perfect. He's it's perfect in every way. On the third day, after hanging between two criminals, one who was exalted and brought into the kingdom because of his belief, the other because the other one whose life ended there on the cross, who scoffed at Christ. They sound a lot like the cupbearer and the baker. That Jesus, when he hung in the middle, interceded for one of them and the other and gave hope for one of them and gave death to another. Himself dying on the cross. He restored his his people, his person, the, the thief who believed in him. Today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus knew going to the cross that he was going to the cross. Didn't he? He knew when he came to earth that he would go to the cross. Didn't he? He knew that he would be the one to give up all of himself for all of us. Joseph had no idea; he thought he was stolen. Jesus would have known it when he was sold, and by the way, he was sold for twenty for thirty shekels of silver by his own brother Judas. I don't want to say that there are. Um, coincidences in life. I believe it's providence. And in this case, we are to be reminded of that our Lord Jesus is greater than all of these men, greater than Joseph. And just like the baker, we deserve that death. We deserve to be hanged on a tree for our sins. Yet we are given the grace that the cupbearer was given. We are given the hope that he obtained He was, the Lord has not forgotten nor forsaken us. Joseph was forgotten. The Lord did not go into this position unknowingly, for he knows all things. I think it changes the way that we read scripture when we try to hear the Lord's voice throughout all of it. So those of you who are feeling forgotten, There, the Lord's timing is perfect for you. The one feeling hopeless, the Lord's timing is perfect for you. The one feeling unjustly accused for something you did not do, the Lord's timing is perfect for you. Those who are feeling just worn out, straight up tired, the Lord's timing is perfect for you. Our Lord is amazing. When we attend to his word We see that he is encouraging us step by step, that he's convicting convicting us of our sins step by step. Do not turn your eyes away from him. Say with us this morning, speak, O Lord, as we come to you to hear your word, to feed on its sustenance. Help us to realize that you are perfect for all people, the just, the unjust, the hopeless, and the hopeful. Let's pray.